boys and gals later on. For those of you who are graduates of Children's Church, thanks for sticking around. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans? This morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 together. And perhaps you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, we've got one for you in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, here's your shortcut. You'll find Romans chapter 3 on page 999 in that pew Bible. And uh, I want to encourage you to uh, open that up and follow along with us as we study this morning. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father, this morning we read words of life, and we need that promise to be fulfilled in us as we study and take these in. Our goal this morning is not mere head knowledge, just intellectual advancement, not even just simple theological agreement. Lord, our, our goal this morning, my prayer this morning, is that we would be a people transformed that this morning someone in here would hear you call them by name. They would unmistakably know that they were created for you, that they would turn to Christ in faith and find eternity in him. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters, uh, we need this gospel applied to our hearts, even today. Help me. Help me as I preach it to do so clearly with Christ as the champion. Holy Spirit, put your power in these words and on our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter three, verses nine through 26 is where we're gonna be today. Uh, there's something deeply wrong with our world. Look at the headlines and, and you've got answers right there. And What's perhaps a greater challenge than that is when I look in the mirror, I see that there's something wrong with me. The problems in this world don't just live somewhere else beyond this border or among a different people. Uh, the mirror tells me there's something wrong with me. We're not morose people. We just recognize there's something about us that's broken. This is not the way things should be. And if you look around, you can for sure find any number of ways to cope. But we need more than just coping skills, don't we? Here's what we need. We need some good news that there's a solution for what's wrong with this world. We need good news that there's a solution for what's wrong with us. And I'm going to give you that good news this morning. That though we're broken and though our world is broken, there's a solution for all of this. Some of you have never heard this news before. Or maybe you have heard it before, but you've heard this news just with your ears and, and not with your heart. My prayer is that you'll listen with your heart this morning. Some of you have heard this news before and you have believed it. But for any number of reasons, you need to be reminded of this good news today. And some of you have heard this good news and you've believed it, and you need to know how to articulate it, how to share it with someone else who also needs to hear this good news. And so today we're going to study the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Some scholars have said that Romans is perhaps the most important book in the entire Bible. And some of those same scholars have said this passage we're studying this morning is perhaps the most important passage in the book of Romans. And that would mean this is the most important passage in the entire Bible. There's an argument to be made. Perhaps its importance comes from the fact that it possesses in itself words of life and hope for those who turn their lives to Jesus Christ, make Him the center of their being. And so I I want us to approach it with that sort of hopefulness and expectation this morning. God's Word does not fail us. And this message He has for us today is life-changing. It's great news. Uh, If you were with us last week, we had a guest preacher, Dr. Michael Hammond, who's the new president at Gordon College. When I was talking with him about what he would be preaching last week, he said, hey, I see where you are in Romans chapter 3. How about I just pick up and go with that? I said, no. I want to be the one to share this good news with my people. You do something. You got the whole Bible. Do anything else. But today I'm happy to share this incredible news with you. I want to share the gospel with you in three parts. Paul gives it to us with these three different headings. Uh, My hope is that keeping it structured this way will make it simple for your understanding and also simple for your repetition, whether you are sharing this story with yourself or with someone God puts in your path. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul's continuing his discussion of the sinfulness of humanity. And he says this, starting in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. This is good news. Uh, It's the gospel. 
And if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? You have to have an answer. I, I wouldn't expect everyone to have an answer, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a member of this church specifically, brothers and sisters, we must all be ready to answer this question with clarity, maybe even with some brevity, but we've got to be able to answer this question, what is the gospel? And that's what Paul gives us this morning in three parts. If we're going to answer that question, well, the gospel begins first of all with the human condition. We have to talk about why it is we need good news. What's the bad news that necessitates the good news? And in verses 9 through 20, we just read Paul giving his concluding statement on the human condition. Now, he's been talking about this ever since chapter 1, verse 18. And if we were to go back and start there, you'd be reminded how Paul has described just the utter sinfulness of all people before God. No one is righteous before God because of their social group or their moral accomplishments. Everyone is destroyed by sin. And in Paul's discussion of sin, he said some really startling things. Remember, he started there at the end of chapter 1 by discussing the, the total sinfulness of Gentile peoples. And then in chapter 2, he said the same thing of Jewish people. Gentile people who don't have the law are not inherently good or innocent. And Jewish people who have the law and circumcision and every spiritual advantage also are not able to achieve righteousness on their own. And so far, Paul has spoken of these groups broadly. But starting here in verse 9, he gets very specific down to the individual. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Paul, what about me? You've talked about all these other people. Paul, what about me? There's no one righteous, not even one. Paul, what about the best among us? There's no one righteous, not even one. Paul, what about the innocent person in Africa? There is no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. In these verses, Paul emphasizes the universal impact of sin. Every person falls under sin's power. And then in verses 13 through 18, he emphasizes the total impact of sin on the human experience. Sin impacts every part of our being. And he makes his case by using this metaphorical language to describe how sin infects all the different parts of our bodies. In verse 13, he says, Our throats are an open grave, and we deceive with our tongues, and venom is on our lips. Verse 14, our mouths are full of cursing. Verse 15, our feet are swift to shed blood. In verse 18, there's no fear of God in our eyes. It's a dark diagnosis. Mankind is living under the curse of sin. And, and while we don't want to hear that, we have to hear that. We have to know the truth about our souls, the truth about the impact of sin on our lives. It's important that we don't distort Paul's words. We could distort them by using them to attack people. We, we could put ourselves in the position of Paul, as if we're the ones writing this letter. We're the ones describing sin, and then we're just casting them like bombs on people. Ha, ah, you, your mouth is full of cursing. Your feet swift to are swift to shed blood. Look what a sinner you are. What a horrible distortion that would be of this passage where 
it sits in front of us like a mirror, making us see our own souls. Now, it's purely conjecture on my part. This is just Cody imagination time. I think Paul writes this portion of his letter with tears in his eyes. I don't think he delights in the sin of humanity, in our rebellion against God. I don't think he rejoices in telling people, apart from Christ, you're doomed. This is not a rant. This is a lament. I think he weeps as he writes these words. Just conjecture. But when I I read his description of humanity here, I'm reminded of how Jesus himself viewed sinful people. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we're told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. No disgust, but compassion. Jesus is full of compassion for his people who are made in his image who are broken by the power of sin. He's full of compassion for you. It's easy to get defensive when we hear the Bible tell us that we are broken sinners before God. That's a hard message to internalize, especially when when we generally view ourselves as good people who are doing our best. But we have to reckon with Paul's concluding statement in verse 20. We've been moving towards verse 20 for several weeks now. Look at it with me. Paul's concluding statement on the matter of things, he says, for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. No one will be justified by works of of the law, whether that law is a religious law, like the law of Moses, or whether that law is a personal moral code, no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. What does Paul mean by the word justified? This is a theological term, a biblical term that I want to encourage you to learn, to make sure you can answer this question. What's the meaning of justified or justification? Well, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, considers our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. It's a once and for all thing. happens at the moment of conversion, this legal declaration from God of not guilty but holy. Imagine a courtroom scene. You're the accused. God is the judge. He's the one you've committed the crime against. The, the, the charges against you are charges of sin against God. And the charges are right. And the verdict is death. And that's the right verdict. What you need in that moment is you need a different declaration from the judge. What you want to hear from him is not guilty. That's what you want to hear from the judge. And Paul says in that moment, if you bring to your defense the law of Moses, or you've cut your flesh, or you're a generally good person, or or you live according to some high standard that the rest of society says is good, you bring that to the table to defend you, you do not hear not guilty. You do not hear the pardon of God. No one will be justified in his sight by works of the law. 
declaration of justified is not received through moral code or religious actions. There's no exceptions. No one is innocent. No one seeks God. Everyone is turned away. We are dead in our sin. That's our condition. That's the human condition. That's the conclusion of the bad news. And again, back to my imagination, perhaps, maybe, Paul took a break at this point in writing his letter to grieve the state of things, to pray for the church in Rome, maybe to pray for those who had never heard the name of Jesus in Spain, which was his eventual or his desired destination. Maybe after a bit of a break to compose himself, he took up his pen again, and what comes next is an eruption of good news. Paul starts with the human condition. We are dead in our sin. The second part of this good news is God's solution. We're not without hope. That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the letter. There's good news to be told. So Paul's conclusion was that no one would be justified by works of the law. But look at this giant reversal in verses 21 and 22. Paul says in verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Although we're dead in sin, we're not doomed. God has revealed to us a righteousness that can be accessed apart from the law. Now, Paul's use of his words here is very strategic, very purposeful. Any chance you remember how he began his section on the sinfulness of mankind way back in chapter 1, verse 18? Of course you remember it. He said this. He said, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That's how he started that section, chapter 1, verse 18. How did he start this one in verse 21? But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And this isn't just stuff that Paul's making up. Paul isn't taking the story of Christ and just inventing some sort of religion out of it. Paul's saying this is the message that was given to us in the law and the prophets, in the Hebrew Bible. The message of old is that sinful people condemned under the law can be made righteous through faith in Jesus. This is for all people, for Jews and Gentiles alike. God does not show favoritism to anyone because of their social group, their religious background. He's, he's, he's not a God that makes distinctions between people. This is good news for everyone who would hear and believe. Because you see, all people have the same problem, the same dilemma. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true of every single person who has ever walked planet earth. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then in verse 24, we have the same solution. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They are justified freely. Back to our courtroom scene. God's on the stand. He is the judge. You are the accused. You are guilty and the verdict is death. And you've tried to argue your case, but I'm good. I'm not as bad as. I haven't done these things. I've tried some good things. I had good intentions. None of it works. You're not justified by works of the law. And at this point, God the Son, Jesus Christ, steps in. 
and says, I love the Father, and I love you, and because of this, I will take your penalty myself. I will take the death that's been given to you on myself in defense of you. And God the Father says, I love the Son, and I love you, and I will accept this substitution. I will put my wrath, all of the punishment that your sin deserves, on him. But justification is more than just a declaration of not guilty. Here's what's incredible about biblical justification. God doesn't just tell you you're not guilty. He tells you you are righteous. The standing of God the Son before God the Father, the perfect righteousness and holiness of Christ is now yours. When you stand before God in judgment, you're not judged based on the work of your life, but on the work of Christ. And it never fails. It's it's what we all have to have. That's the standard by which we see God in all of His glory for all eternity. and And our sins are forgiven because of Christ's righteousness. So He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. That's not salvation. What do we do with a clean slate? We make them dirty, quickly. Clean slate salvation is not salvation. What salvation is, is you are not only not guilty, but you, my child, you're righteous. You're holy. You're sinlessly perfect in my judgment because of the advocate, the one who has stood in your place for you. Paul says in verse 24, we're justified freely. It's a gift from God. It's not a reward that we've earned. It's free. This is what makes salvation so scandalous. We are much more comfortable with a merit-based system. But the second you attach religious deeds or the avoidance of sin to the reasons for your justification, then you've changed it from free to earned. If you were to say something like, well, God will do me well because of my baptism, wrong. God will save me because I'm good. Incorrect. We are justified freely. What does he say? By God's grace. God in his grace has chosen to save those who hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We do not deserve this. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. But God is compassionate and full of grace. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's the meaning of the word redemption? It's a term that gets used often in the the New Testament and it's used often in the church. Well, here's a simple definition of the word redeem or redemption. To redeem means to liberate by paying a price. In the Old Testament, perhaps the grandest image of this is in Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt. They were redeemed. They were liberated at a price. That high price ultimately was the Passover event, the death of the firstborn by which the Israelite families were protected by the blood of lambs that were sacrificed and the blood put over the uh, entryways of their homes. That was a foreshadowing of the salvation, the rescue to come, the redemption at such a high price. You're bought at a price, and that price is the price of the blood of God the Son. This is great news. 
You're not judged based on your performance, nor are you excluded because of some singular sin you've committed. You aren't thrown out because you don't belong to the right group of people. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. It's the free gift of God to all who believe. Last year, a clip from a sermon uh, from one of my favorite preachers, a man named Alistair Begg. This clip got shared widely on social media and rightly so. Go look for it. We'll post it on our Facebook page later today. Do a search for Alistair Begg, the man on the middle cross. And in preaching about the freeness of salvation, Alistair said this. He said, we cannot justify ourselves in the first person. I was baptized, I believed, I was good, we can only justify ourselves in the third person because He died and rose again, because He called me out of my sin, because He saved me and justified me. And the case study for this is the thief on the cross. And imagine his entrance interview at the gates of heaven. He just shows up there one day and the angel says to him, what are you doing here? And the thief says, I, I really don't know. So the angel says, well, let me, let me ask you a few questions. Let's try and sort this out. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the guy says, I've, I've never heard of it. And the angel's a little troubled by this. He's like, okay, well, what, what about the doctrine of Scripture? Let's talk about that for a moment. And the guy just stares blankly. And finally, in frustration, the, the angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And the thief replied, the man on the middle cross said I can come. That's it. He's the one who gives this salvation. I've been a believer for 30 years. And in that time, I've been told that in order to be saved, I need to speak in tongues. I need to be baptized. I, I need to take communion a certain way. I need to read only the King James Version of the Bible. I need to agree with some fringe doctrines around the church. But the gospel says I am justified freely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's God's solution for our condition. To redeem us, liberate us at the price of his own son. Jesus is a huge part of this. We've got the human condition. We've got God's solution. The third part of this good news story is Christ's provision. Why is faith in Jesus specifically so important? Why is faith in Jesus essential to our salvation? I want you to look at what Paul said about Jesus in verse 25. He said, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith. Now, we need to do a little word work for a, a quick moment if you have a different translation of the Bible than what I've read this morning, your Bible, verse 25, may not use the phrase atoning sacrifice. The NIV uses the phrase sacrifice of atonement. Uh, the RSV uses the phrase expiation, which means the cleansing or the wiping away of sin. The ESV 
and the New King James use the word propitiation. God presented him as a propitiation. I like the word propitiation here. All of these are attempts to translate one single Greek word. It's the word hilasterion. And it's a tricky word to translate. The reason it looks different in our different translations of the Bible is because you've got these translators that are trying to communicate a really complicated idea in a really limited amount of space. The literal translation of this word is mercy seat. And the mercy seat was the name used of the cover or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was placed in the Holy of Holies. Once a year, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, or on the mercy seat. And when the blood of the sacrificial lamb was placed on the mercy seat, then God's wrath on the sin of his people was applied to the lamb rather than to his people. So the mercy seat is both the means and the location of our atonement. So in God's economy, God punishes all sin. And in order to redeem us from our sin, God the Father presents God the Son as the mercy seat. Jesus is the singular person. And the cross is the only place where the punishment for our sin is poured out. By taking the Father's wrath for our sin, Jesus is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our mercy seat. He is the person and place where redemption is accomplished. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice. There's no one else who could do this because He is holy, perfectly God, and He is also holy human. In order to die on the cross, he had to be really human. In order for that death to be effective for our salvation, he had to be truly, fully God. And that's what the scriptures give us. What does this tell us about God the Father? That he gave the Son to be this propitiation or the atoning sacrifice. Well, Paul tells us in verse 25, this is a demonstration of the Father's righteousness. And remember, when we speak of God's righteousness, we're speaking of His correctness, His fairness. So to say the death of the Son is the demonstration of the Father's righteousness, is Paul saying that God in this way is fair to all people, showing favoritism to none. He will give salvation freely to everyone who believes on Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of verse 25, Paul uses some language that's a little confusing to us as readers, modern readers especially. He says... God passed over sins that were previously committed. What does that mean? What are the sins that were previously committed? Well, he's not talking about sins that you and I committed before we were followers of Jesus. But rather, he's talking about those sins that were committed before the death of Christ on the cross. Those sins that were committed under the old covenant. During that time... God really forgave sin, but it was through a sacrificial system that was always meant to be temporary, a system that was always ultimately insufficient. The repetition of the Day of Atonement was a symbolic ritual by which God's, or the, the people's sins were forgiven by God, but those sacrifices were insufficient, always meant to be a short-term solution. They were temporary until the perfect sacrifice of God the Son arrived. 
So God really forgave sin in that old covenant, but he did so through extraordinary mercy and grace on his part, knowing that full payment was coming through the death of the Son on the cross. In verse 26, Paul says that God has now demonstrated his righteousness at the present time through the presentation or the proof of his Son. So, so in other words, the atoning death of Christ is the climactic moment in salvation history. It's the hinge on which God's saving purposes for people turns. Under the old covenant, lamb's blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, but now in this new covenant, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the mercy seat himself. And why is this so important? Well, Paul's making a point about the absolute necessity of faith in Jesus Christ, the absolute perfection and ability and power of faith in Christ to save anyone who believes. Remember, Paul's interacting a bit with some imaginary objections. And you can imagine one objector might say, we don't need Jesus, we have a sacrificial system. And Paul, in so many words, is saying, no, you don't. The system was temporary. Jesus' sacrifice was ultimate and forever, and the sacrificial system is now over. The perfect lamb has come. I heard a preacher just this week make this observation. You could ask a person, are you a Christian? And they might say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And you ask, what makes you a Christian? And they might say, well, I go to church, I pray, I'm a good person, I'm generous, I do my best. And what's missing in that answer? Jesus is missing in that answer. It's entirely possible in our modern culture to call yourself a Christian without having any love for Christ or any faith in Christ. How does that make any sense? It is a devastating way to assess your own soul. Because Christ is essential for our salvation. Without Him, we are not saved. And apart from faith in Him, we are not justified or redeemed. Our sins are not atoned for. Now, there are some people who would object to this. They would say, look, okay, Jesus makes sense for the Christian, but only for Christians. Look, if there is a God, he's one God at the top of a mountain, and here are all these different roads up the mountain to the same destination, and Christians take the Jesus road, and Muslims take the Muhammad road, and Jews take the Abraham road. Atheists say there isn't a road, but that's a road, and agnostics don't know what road they're on, but they're going to get there eventually. We're all just taking different roads up the same mountain to the same destination. The good news of the gospel is that God the Father sent God the Son to destroy the mountain of requirement altogether. He leveled the mountain by giving His life. In doing so, He opens His arms in an invitation to all people, telling all Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics and Protestants and Catholics alike, come to me and you will find salvation for your souls. For all people on this planet, salvation goes through Jesus Christ. He's not a road. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His own declaration. And this is good news. That we don't have to wander these dark paths anymore. We're not climbing a mountain. God has come to us. God the Son laid down His life. 
And he has made the way for us to know eternity with him. So if someone were to ask you, what is the gospel? How would you answer? Paul has given us a sort of script this morning with three really simple headings just to help us in our telling of the story or our processing of the story. First is the human condition. The gospel begins with the sin of mankind. We're all sinners separated from God. There's nothing we can do to change that. Second is God's solution to our condition. And what's the solution? It's to provide a righteousness for everyone who turns to Jesus in faith. That's God's free gift of grace. We've got the human condition and God's solution in Christ's provision. Faith in Christ is essential. He's the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, perhaps at some point this morning, you've had this thought. You've thought, Cody, I don't really need to hear this because I'm already a believer. So I hope this is good for someone else. But friend, who did Paul write this letter to? He wrote it to the church in Rome. He opens his letter with these words, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's coming with an agenda. He's coming to give them the gospel. Not so they'll be resaved or really saved, but because he knows the power of the gospel for the believer. He closes his letter, chapter 16, verse 25, by praising God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. So for the believer, we find strength in the gospel. And so for the Christian who is today crushed by sin and self-condemnation, you need to hear the gospel to be reminded again of your position in Christ and to find fresh strength for your repentance. To the Christian who is arrogant, you need to hear the gospel today and see our humble Savior nailed to the cross for our sins. The Christian who dabbles in legalism needs to hear the gospel and be refreshed in the free grace of God. The Christian who squirms at the idea of the exclusivity of Christ needs to hear the gospel and be reminded not to be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The Christian who is praying for the salvation of others needs to hear the gospel again in order to endure in prayer and then perhaps even to find the words to speak to the person whose eternity you care about. But this message isn't only for believers, is it? This gospel message is for those who have yet to put their faith in Christ. Is that you? Maybe I've described your condition at some point in the message this morning. You might be one of those who would say, I'm a Christian, but, but your answer to that has got nothing to do with Christ. Well, the Bible has said a lot to you today. The Bible has said that, first of all, you're a sinner who's separated from God. And look, when I first understood that idea, my brain exploded. I, I had lived my life from the position of an accuser against God. I felt like he had done me wrong. He owed me answers. He's the reason I'm far from him if he's even there to begin with. And then I, I heard, he's not going to give an account to me, but I've got to give an account to him, my creator, who I have sinned against. I am guilty, and the verdict is settled. And when I went from understanding I, I'm not the accuser to I'm the accused, that changed everything. 
because then in desperation, it's like, I, what do I do now? I'm in big trouble. But remember, the Bible doesn't leave us there in that hopeless place. The Bible also tells us that God the Father sent God the Son to die on the cross for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise to you is that if you will turn to him in faith, he's going to rescue you from your sin, justify you, redeem you. Your sins are atoned for. You're his child forevermore. And so now the invitation is put to you. We, we cannot just roll through this and, and just go on about our day and say, well, wasn't that nice? The, the Word of God calls us to decision. Are you tired of your hopelessness? Are you tired of carrying your guilt and your shame? Are, are you ready to be forgiven, to be made new, to know eternal life? Are you ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you believe that He died and rose again for your sin? Do you believe that by turning to Him, and living your life to glorify Him, to know Christ and to make Him known, that He'll be yours and you'll be His? If you believe this and you're ready to turn, He's ready to receive you and to make you His child today. Friends, let this be the day that you can say for yourself, I've been justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we have heard your word and we have seen your love displayed. God, I ask now that you would, that you would awaken faith in us. Awaken faith so that those who have not believed would believe. Those who have not turned would turn. Those who were dead in sin would come alive through faith in Christ. Father, reap a harvest this morning through your faithful word. For my brothers and sisters this morning, would you empower us, strengthen us by your gospel, which has given us life and gives us hope and holds us all the way to the very end. It's in Christ's name that we pray.